Hey listeners, do you enjoy movies? So do we. And that's why we record Nerds on Film, our weekly podcast where it's just us sitting around making jokes and talking movies. In fact, if you guys have not subscribed to that already, you really should. I'll wait. Have you done it yet? You haven't? What is wrong with you? You're super lazy, right? Jeez, we made it really easy. You just go to nerdonomy.com and you click the freaking iTunes button. Stop procrastinating, get off your lazy ass, and go do it. Thank you. Sound check. Sound check. Check one, check two. Sound check. Sound check, check two. Check. So, uh, Brian, communication, history of, sounds interesting. Huh? Communication. This week's episode, we're doing communication. History of communication. What? History of communication. Huh? Brian, is your monitor on? I can't... What? Turn your monitor on. Oh, my God. We Thousands of years of communication. I'm kidding. I can hear everything you're saying. Oh, I hate you so much. <laughs> Welcome to Nerds on History. I'm Brian Moriarty. And I am Eric Brickmont. Good sir. How you doing? I'm doing all right. It's yeah. been a very interesting week. Yeah, I know. It's yeah. been... Uh, lots of highs, lots of lows. Yeah, I understand. It's been pretty crazy. You and uh, you and Sean, in particular, have had kind of a, kind of a rough week. Yeah, nerds out there, uh, sorry to say that uh, my grandmother passed away about a week ago. And it was not unexpected. She had been fighting ovarian cancer for about a year and five months and she stopped responding to treatment about a month ago and they gave her four to twelve weeks and about five weeks after that yeah she she went and it wasn't until about a week before that uh it was really the rapid decline she was actually doing really the last time the last time i saw her that was on easter wasn't it was on easter um she was doing pretty well a little weak starting to lose a little bit of weight but she was doing okay and if you've ever had a, a loved one out there where you know that this is going to be the last time you see this person literally this is the last time i saw her because she's being cremated so i'm not even gonna get a chance to see a casket at the funeral nothing prepares you for it even if you do get that moment to say goodbye and i didn't really say goodbye i just told her that i loved her and that thank thank you you know because if it wasn't for her indirectly i wouldn't exi- i wouldn't exist nothing prepares you it's equally as hard as it is when you know that they're gone for sure so um well i think uh i think i speak for everybody who listens and certainly as you've heard from the whole nerdonomy family we've all expressed our condolences to you and sean and uh we love you and uh we're there for you and uh, it's gonna be okay i know and i love you guys too and this has been interesting because the first thing I wanted to hear when I heard the news, because I was at school and I had just to, I had to go home, obviously I couldn't yeah. think straight, was I wanted to hear the podcasts. I did. And even though we produce them, it sounds kind of weird, but hearing your guys' voices made me feel like I wasn't alone, even though I felt very alone at that moment. And you guys have been like a second family to me. And I know you feel the same way. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And our fans have, in a weird way, become like a family to us because, you know, we have a very small but loyal audience. And it's amazing to me the connections we've made. Yeah. From around the world. From around the world. From as far as Australia to Ireland to... South Africa. South Africa now. It's like we we are touching... What I feel like is all the corners. Once we get someone from China or from Japan, I'm going to feel like we reached all the corners of the globe. I thought we had someone from Japan already. Did we? I could have sworn we had someone from Japan. If we did, wrong. I am so sorry if I've, if I've forgotten you. Um, but I may have also invented you. You may not exist. You may have just come there into existence that. now because yeah. I willed you into existence. There is that. Which, by the way, you owe me. <laughs> so anyway, I, I don't want to drag this out longer than we need to. Um... Case in point, Nerdonomy has been a place of comfort during this hard time. And the one thing I knew for sure, even though I'm grieving right now, is that I was not going to miss the podcast. I was not going to miss recording because um, 
And that's a real, real sign of your dedication and loyalty to everything we do here and just to the healing ability that this, that this podcast has had. Yeah, it's oddly self-serving because I enjoy <laughs> with this very much. And it's, it is, it's, a, it's a release. It yeah. absolutely is. And you guys, when we ask each other how we really are, I, you guys deserve an honest answer, yeah, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Because how many times have we ever asked somebody... How you doing? And they're saying I'm fine, and eh, you, you know, right. yeah, and you know they're lying to you. Yeah, they're hiding whatever's going on. I don't believe in that. I believe in being really, really honest. And some people find that off-putting, and I don't care. <laughs> we know that you guys, uh, you guys care enough about all of us that we can be honest and share yeah. our thoughts and feelings with you. And because you share your thoughts and feelings with us, I mean, we've got a lot of folks who have really letting us know yeah uh, speaking of our amazing audience yeah um let's bring it up a little bit with some feedback that we've gotten from our listeners all right well okay i'm gonna start first with benny because i think if i don't uh he's gonna explode my my inbox our second follower from australia because we have um one of our twitter followers is from i think we've gotten an email from australia before too that that's great. That's a good sign when you have so many people giving you feedback that you're you're starting to forget. If you remember the one person who gave you feedback, you're probably not doing the greatest podcast ever. So, <laughs> not that we're doing the greatest podcast ever, but um, thank you. I was going to say you caught yourself there. But we are certainly doing better than sucking. Can we make a podcast called the greatest podcast ever? And then in parentheses, better, but not really, but better than sucking. <laughs> exactly. Um, let's no. make it. Let's make a note. Folks, that is officially trademarked by Nerdonomy now. You, you may not use that. We will find you. But I want to give a shout out to Benny from Brisbane, Australia. Benny, I love you for two very important reasons. I'm going to say three. Three. First off, you clearly love ancient history, as that has been the subject of both of your emails that you sent me. Two, you have sent two emails, which again makes me happy. And the second email that you sent uh, starts with "Good day, nerds." Thank you. Thank you, and all of been, Australia. I have never been greeted with "Good day" before. That makes me feel happy. That's how we know we are dealing with a real Australian. Good day. And even saying the word good day, like you can't say it and not sound a little, a little Australian saying it. That's true. I could sound really Australian, although I don't think I do a terribly good. You should not because we could insult Benny and we, we don't <laughs> want to. All right, Benny, if you approve of me doing an Australian accent, send us another email and let us know. Yeah, it's very Sydney, I will say. It's not, it's not as – because as you get to different parts of Australia, it has as much variation as the different – British accents. Oh, absolutely. Do and it's sometimes hard to tell whether someone's Australian, for my ear at least, whether they're Australian or British, depending on what part of the country they're really? from. Really, I maybe just because I've watched so much television from the BBC, but I can tell an Australian. I can tell an Australian and New Zealand accent. I can tell the accent pretty well. It's actually very much higher and much more in the nose. It's a lot more nasal. Yeah, we talked about this when I gave you. When I, never mind, forget this. The you know what? We're going off it. on a sidetrack. The yeah, totally point are. is, Benny, thank you for your shout outs. Um, he had requested more information, uh, dedicated episodes, in fact, on Alexander the Great, which I think is a great idea. Haha, pun, yes, intended. Moving on. And then, of course, also more about Rome, which, if you are, uh, which, in fact, we're recording on a Monday. You'll hear that later on. Of course, you won't hear that at the same time. But uh, Etu Goofy Part 2. Featuring the amazing Dan Lazarus. Uh, yeah, what just went on last week. Yeah, and so there you go. More Rome. Boom. We'll there have more go. for you coming out yeah. in the future. He probably didn't know that it was coming. That's okay. It's cool. It's a nice little surprise. Yeah, surprise. Your praise have been answered, sir. <laughs> um, but, you know, we could always revisit Rome. There's so much we haven't talked about, and really with any of the ancient civilizations. I mean, they devote entire majors and postgraduate degrees to studying ancient civilizations and not just that specific ancient civilizations. So we could certainly cover more. Oh, absolutely. And we will. Yeah. Uh, Aunt Teresa. Oh, good old Aunt Teresa. Good old Teresa. How's she doing? She's doing great. In fact, she emailed us after uh, we gave her the shout out. This is a bit now. She can, She is a character. On, we have to have her on the show at some point. I think oh, we do. Oh, this summer. I'm sure she'll probably be out here again this summer. Uh, we'll do you on. think she would want to do it? I'm, I would not be surprised. I'm almost guaranteed she will. Okay. Uh, if not, then we have my Uncle Eric on. And he'll be on Nerds on Film. Are you sure. named after your uncle? No. No, just coincidence. No, but great names, great minds. Okay. Yeah. I will say that, uh, I'll just read the first line ever, or first line on this. It's very funny. It says, hey, oh my God, I have arrived. I was mentioned on the best <laughs> podcast ever. There'll be no living with me now. Just ask your cousins. <laughs> 
So, Aunt Teresa, again. I can totally imagine how she said that, too. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. You are wonderful. We love you. And uh, thanks for thanks for listening in the shout-out, of course, or the email. Okay, let's uh, move on to our next bit of listener feedback. We had a lot this week. We did uh, have a lot. Let's see. We have Allie. Allie gave us a uh, message on our Facebook page, and she just wanted to say that uh, she's been listening for the past few months, and she's finally caught up. Uh, she really enjoyed the April Fool's episode, so thank you. We had a lot of fun with that. Uh, and she was curious if she could get a shout-out. Well, Allie, here you go. You ready for it? One, two, three. Allie! We just shouted you out. Allie, thank you so much for Stella! listening. Stella! <laughs> Uh, we always love to get feedback and especially when you, when you've got something great to say, you really enjoy the episode. We appreciate mm-hmm. that a lot. Uh, let's see here. Oh, Michelle. Michelle has uh, dropped us a line before mm-hmm. and she had actually suggested that we reach out to sex nerd Sarah on the Nerdist channel. Right. Uh, because she knows that we've got an upcoming episode sometime in the future. We haven't really planned out exactly when, but what mm-hmm. we're going to do on history of sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. So uh, Michelle, great idea. I guess we could try giving her an email, see if she responds. Maybe if some of our followers do the same, it might uh, encourage her to, to come on over. I don't know. Sure. But that would be fun. That would be awesome. Oh, also, Kyla takes exception to my Aunt Teresa being titled as the number one fan for the show. Kyla Prenz, of course, our former guest host that we had on during our theater episode. And of course. And of ours, uh, who we love dearly, Kyla. You hold a special place in our heart, but we may have to have you battle it out with my Aunt Teresa, because, um, I don't know, it's getting kind of close here. Kind of neck to neck. Yeah. It's funny how we were thinking the same thing. <laughs> we do that a lot. Yeah. I, I'm convinced that we are long lost relatives. In some way, the Moriarty and the Brickmont family diverged at one point, but I think we were, at some point, much closer. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Brian. I think that's what we've got for listener feedback right now. Do you have anything else? No, I'm good. Awesome. Okay, well, corrections then. One really quick one for this week from a a pal of ours. We need to have on the show John from work. Yes, sir. John. Uh, John, this is your shout out. Now, we've never mentioned you before. We haven't, which is a damn shame because the guy is fantastic. Yeah. He's the one guy who said, uh, I love your podcast. And the reason why I know I love it is because halfway through, I'm screaming at the radio <laughs> 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 because he wants us to talk about something that we, we have overlooked. Our good friend John is very much a space nut, just like I am. Probably way more than I am, actually. Yeah. I actually have a word for that it's astronaut. Astronaut. He is an astronaut extreme, and uh, he wanted to correct me quite rightly. And I should have known this. This is stupid of me. Deke Slayton. I said in our one of our previous episodes that he had never made it into space because of a medical condition that he had. Right. Like, this is the this week in history episode. Right. Where we where we talk about the Mercury Seven. I was wrong. Later on, he did actually in 1975 when uh, there was the first time that we joined an Apollo and a Soyuz spacecraft a russian spacecraft together and docked successfully he was on that crew after being cleared for his medical condition which turned out to be pretty much bogus uh, preventing him from ever really making it to the moon but hey he got a chance to go in fact he was the oldest man in space at that time later that you know record of course will be broken by john glenn right but i wanted to send a correction out there and while we're on the subject of john if you would like to actually hear him, you can. We should definitely have him on our podcast, but he's already been a guest host on another podcast of two friends of ours, Ali and Jackie Mimbari, who do their brand new podcast, the Overstand Podcast. And uh, he was on, I believe, their second episode. Yeah, he was on just very briefly, he said, as a little cameo. He was on for the, well, I don't know. He was there for a good amount of time. Okay. John did a great job with that episode. If you want to hear him, and I really think we need to have him on the show when we do our Sure. I believe he's also been on fight. our friend's podcast, the No Format podcast. I think well. so. Yeah. He's I already think he said that. He's already a podcast veteran. Why don't, why don't we have him on our show? Yeah, it's kind of... And he's got a great voice for, for podcasting yeah. as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, John. Yeah, John. We'll have be you on here. sooner or later. Hopefully sooner. All right. Well, oh... One last thing to talk about this week. I'm sorry, folks. We will actually get to the topic uh, eventually. Because we're 15 minutes in. All right. The clock is ticking. But we have to talk about where we are recording from, Brian. Well, if they listen to the Nerds on Film podcast, they already know. I don't care. I want to say it anyway. Go ahead. I'll give you your moment. Nerd Cave 
2.0. And it sounds great. It does. It's going to keep getting better, I think, once we finish everything. Because right now it's kind of in a beta stage. It's yeah. not quite 2.0 yet. Even between last night's recording and this one, it's a pretty drastic improvement, I would say. I would say so, too. It may have to do with all the bundles of carpet that we haven't actually laid on the floor yet, just kind of hanging in here absorbing sound. But eventually they'll get on the floor and do their proper job. Yeah. I think there's a law of physics that says that just because they're piled up together doesn't mean they're not going to lose their effectiveness. I think just them being spread out will maybe actually probably make it better. Yeah, I would hope so. It better. Yeah. Or I'm that carpet's going to If you're a physicist it. out there, please correct me on that. <laughs> or I'm, don't. I'm not a scientist. Correct. But yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. We'll have pictures up as soon as it gets into a little bit more of a uh, completed state, including the awesome door that we are painting, which we will leave as a surprise for a future episode. And yeah, I'm excited about it. So let's get to the topic. Yes, we shall. Well, you know what? Actually, well, this has been a super busy week for us. Yeah. Everything with the Nerd Cave. And lots of feedback. Tons of listener feedback. And as we were saying earlier, I mean, it's crazy to think that we're we're talking to someone, people who are all over the world, you know? And that kind of got us thinking. We haven't had a chance to talk about where did we get the ability to communicate instantaneously, right? And it goes back much further than most people would perceive of. And I think that's what we're going to have to talk about tonight. We're going to talk about early... <laughs> Early modern communication, kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> Early long distance communication really is what it is, or effective communication. Sure. Because obviously people have been talking to each other for a really long time. Sure. I find it fascinating, though, that uh, you know we strive to find better and faster ways to keep communicating with each other, going back thousands upon thousands of years. And really... The spoken language was the first way it was done, right? You know, I'm thinking more in terms of kind of medieval Europe, but the town crier was literally the loudest person in the village. And that's how they auditioned for it. You would have people all come together at some point. You would probably put out a notice in the town, uh, most likely spread ironically through word of mouth. And then you would audition who could scream the loudest from one end of the village to the other and effectively communicate whatever it is you wanted shared with the entire community. Now, obviously, that had to be something that was for the ears of everybody because you didn't want to, you know, yell out private information to the entire community. That would just be bad. I can imagine a town crier coming out of the house of someone screaming down the street to the doctor. Sure. Oh, oh Robert. Yes. Dr. Robert. Yes. It's about Frederick. What's what about Frederick? Frederick has finally passed the gallstone. His what? His gallstone. Ballstones? No, no, no. Gallstone. Oh, thank heavens. You see, it just doesn't really work. No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) I will say one historical example of when it did work. Are you familiar with Adon? No. Well, you probably are. You just didn't know it was called that. Adon is what is exclaimed by a a museum from a minaret of a mosque to call... Oh, yes. I am familiar with that. ...to prayer. Of course I am familiar with that. Yeah, it's shouted out five times a day. It's not shouted. It's actually sung. Right. In Arabic. And there you go. Here's an example. And that's pretty much anybody who is in an earshot. And of course, there's a function behind the why they're in the minaret because sound that's going from a higher altitude is going to travel farther. Exactly. And of course, now, obviously, in modern times today, we use loudspeakers that are pretty much, you know, set up sure. all around cities to do that, particularly in places like Air East. But in ancient times and older times, that's how things were done. Absolutely. So obviously, we've been talking a lot about the verbal communication, but... Really, obviously, communication took a high note when writing was invented. And writing has been around for quite some time. Arguably, there are two schools that state that either hieroglyphics written in ancient Egypt or cuneiform, which was written in Mesopotamia, one or the other came first. I always thought cuneiform came first. It's been debated because of some finds that have been found in pre-dynastic Egyptian times. I don't really know. Honestly, I don't think it really matters. I think they probably developed in and around the same time as each other. Well, not to argue semantics, but wouldn't hieratic precede hieroglyphics no. in this case no actually it's the opposite it's hieratic the opposite. was a cursive form of hieroglyphics so once the hieroglyphs had been developed then hieratic came into place to make it easier to write out you know i'm a fool for questioning an expert so there you, you are go. not a fool at all never question me again moving on yes my lord <laughs> regardless though cuneiform was certainly a very very well executed and developed language it was very easy to write out because you generally used pieces of soft clay as your, your writing medium, right? Whereas in Egypt, it was very 
uncommon to use any kind of material like that. You would usually use papyrus, for example, which was a, a form of paper, or engraving the hieroglyphs in a tomb or what have you. So you actually had less more casual writing that was done. Whereas with in Mesopotamia and with cuneiform, you have a much easier to execute language. And with that, you had a lot more being written and a lot more needing to be transported about. The, the trouble, though, is that you had to write it down on wet clay while it was still drying, right? So you had to have a pretty clear idea of what you were going to write down because there's no going back, pretty much. Well, it's also pretty easy. I want I shouldn't say easy to write with you know cuneiform, but it is a much easier process because you have a small wedge-shaped stylus that you just imprint into the clay and you just change the position of the little wedges, which in fact that's what cuneiform means, wedge-shaped. So it's pretty easy to execute once you once you know what you're you know writing. I will say when it came to concealing them and making them more private, it became a little bit more tricky. But when I used to work at the museum, we had a small cuneiform collection. I'd say probably about 200 or so pieces. Hmm. And one of them was this large, fat piece of clay. Didn't have very much writing on it. It had more of a, a seal imprinted into it, which is not uncommon. Cylinder seals were, were very common in, in Mesopotamia as well. But this was a little different. And we had always wondered what it was. So they actually took an x-ray of it. And what they found inside was a letter. Really? So the clay envelope was, in fact, an envelope. Huh. Yeah, I know. Isn't that crazy? So that was meant to be a private message that, for whatever reason, never got sent to uh, the person. And unfortunately, the resolution of the scan wasn't terribly great, so we weren't able to actually discern what was written on it. And I have since, of course, left the museum, so I have no idea what further progress they've made with that. But Sure. Uh, well, wow. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, no kidding. So obviously, <clears throat> once you've got a lot of things written down, you got to get them to people. It's not good enough just to write on a large slab of clay and then just hold that up in the air and hope somebody can read it you know, from the other end of the village. You've got to be able to, to get it to places. And again, in the Near East and ancient Persia, you had no better system than the horse-ridden male. Okay. And that was a system that was in place for... Thousands over, of years. Exactly, over a millennia. That multiple civilizations had attempted to emulate and reach a, a successful speed in which communication could be transported and we're talking at its height because of the roads that they had available to them and the system that they had set up of couriers that were that were horse ridden you could send a message about 300 miles a day wow. and yeah we're talking you know 1500 bce but that horse would be going from literally dawn to dusk if not well, later that's the beauty of it is there wasn't just one horse there was kind of a relay system that was set up in place so the messages were being handed off to a fresh horse and horsemen uh, and you had this continually fresh speed being maintained because of it. And it was absolutely genius. Hmm. And, it would, you know, Cyrus the Great is the one who had really, under his leadership and reign, perfected the process. And it is mind-blowing when you really think of the, the distances that can be covered in just a very short amount of right. time. Well, who could use this communication, though? Because would it just be the military and the people in power? Or could the average everyday person do this, too? Not really the average everyday person. And most of them, so. yeah, Well, most of them didn't have business that would have gone that far. I mean, if you think about it in ancient times, warfare and matters of state were really the only things that needed to travel that kind of distance and that kind of speed. So while it certainly wasn't available to everybody, it's still extremely impressive. The level of sophistication that was required to make that happen. And it is something, like I said, that many cultures would attempt to emulate you know, for thousands of years. I will say certain cultures and civilizations have done things a little differently. If we're talking about the Native Americans of North America, for example, they didn't have a written language. They had a spoken tradition and a spoken history, but they never really had a written language. So when it came to communicating over distances, that was a little bit more difficult. And you've heard of the... Uh, the term smoke signals before? Of course. Ironically, these days, it's more a joke, right? Yeah. Oh, man, my cell phone battery's dead. Oh, that's okay. Let's just send smoke signals. And then people kind of chuckle because it's not really a funny joke. But there's your topical tie-in. It's a very topical tie-in. And that's actually a really, really important one, too, because, well, what kind of signals do you do? You, you have to develop a coding system to transmit the message. And we... This sounds very, very technical, but not really, because we're talking about basic communication. What a scientist uses to define communication is one person, one organism, transmitting a signal by which another organism can receive it 
and respond. Right. Right. And if you think about it, that's exactly what we've been doing. Even now in the age of iPads and mobile phones, we're just using a different tool to transmit, to transmit the message. Right. And when it comes to signaling with smoke, this is not a new idea. And it's certainly not exclusive to the Native Americans, for example, who did utilize it and very successfully, mind you. Sure. But when you're talking about ancient China, for example, the Great Wall had a whole signal system set up along its length using fire and smoke to signal when there was a, an attack or an impending invasion because the wall was so massive, so long, that uh, a running or riding courier just wasn't fast enough. And in that case, you were able to transmit a message as far as 470 miles away for our uh, European and uh, Australian listeners, that's 750 kilometers, in just a couple hours. And we were talking about an entire day Right, just to convey 300 miles, which is fantastic considering the limitations and the speed of a horse. But that's really impressive. The Greeks, the Greeks had a really complex system of alphabetical smoke signals. So they had whole letters that were created, just like you were talking about with signals that were being uh, constructed and what have you. Uh, and then, of course, like we mentioned, the, uh, the Native, Native Americans have a very iconic now uh, smoke signal system that was uh, used and set up. And what we're really talking about here, even though we're using the word smoke signal, is we're talking about a telegraph. Yeah, I mean, absolutely we are. Yeah, in a very rudimentary form. Now, I'm sure there's plenty of listeners out there who are scratching their head and saying, Brian, what are you talking about? Isn't a telegraph a little thing that you tap on the table? Well, we're going to get to that, believe me. That would be considered the electrical telegraph. But telegraphs have been around for centuries if you think about it when you look at it in that respect when you talk about encoding a message and sending it across a long distance telegraphs have been around for a long time yeah and it informs even more evolved than than smoke yeah the the one that most historians will acknowledge as telegraphs you can argue smoke signals and there are some that will but we're talking about those don't really come into dominance until the late 18th century right and there's a couple different ways they do it one is just an optical effect we're using a beacon on a hill. The other is using similar idea of uh, with a semaphore line. And that would basically be involving... I don't quite see the details from the research I've done of quite how a semaphore telegraph is different than an optical telegraph. And they, in fact, may be just two different names for the same thing. But a semaphore uses shutters and blades to encode the signal. And what, well, what are they encoding? Usually a beacon, a mirror of some kind, I believe it's reflecting sunlight, would go down. And same thing, it's blinking, right? It's blinking in a code that we use to decipher a message. And for our listeners, you're probably most familiar with seeing this in movies that have featured naval battles predominantly or other kind of maritime traditions, right? So you're seeing that encoded message that's being done, the Morse code, if you will, using the, the shutters. That is essentially exactly what you're talking about, right? Pretty much, yeah, yeah. Well, the other the other type of optical telegraph actually uses a series of slats and arms that are operated by pulleys. And they bring those slats and arms together to create symbols that represent letters that are then deciphered later down the line. That actually may be the semaphore. I think that's, that I think that's what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that one, the semaphore one, was actually developed very much to its height. I mean, it had been around for quite some time, ever since telescopes were invented, essentially, because then you could look out over a distance and see this kind of fine detail work that was going on. But when it was really used effectively was during the French Revolution and the wars that followed with Britain. And France had this system that was set up by a gentleman by the name of Chappé, who... And Chappé was the one who developed, who actually coined the term telegraph. Yeah. And we're talking from, you know, 1793 to 1830, an enormous series of literally these, you know, semaphore lines breaking apart the French countryside could be easily spotted and then used to uh, to send messages. And even if you had enemies or spies who were there in the country, it didn't matter because you wouldn't obviously bring the slats together and, you know, make a Y or make an M or, uh, you know, come on, man. I'm trying to do the YMCA here. Come on, <laughs> pay attention. It's much funnier to leave you hanging. Oh, thank you. Uh, but the point is you would obviously make a code and you exactly. would have a code that would change so that people couldn't learn it like enemy spies or enemy infiltrators in your country. And then you would you would update that and pass that around to people. So, I mean, it was still very effective and still very quick in communicating, but it could be deciphered pretty easily if you had somebody who was on the inside or somebody who was pretty known. Sure. And it was not uncommon for these telegraphs to be placed on top of hills, 
which makes total sense because that's the highest point in a distance. You can send it across a valley mm-hmm. if you needed to, if it was a clear enough day. But we're still talking about not as great distance, right? right? We're talking about maybe within the next town, if we're lucky. And I guess you could relay that message upon to an, from another tower to, to another tower. But not really. And in fact, actually, it's a cool little side note. The reason why Telegraph Hill in San Francisco has the name Telegraph Hill is because it was at one point the foundation of one of these types of telegraphs. Booyah. You totally stole my factoid. I did, didn't I? But I have another factoid that goes along with that. Oh, okay. Well, the reason why it existed was to alert local merchants and um, importers and exporters in San Francisco when a particular type of ship was coming into harbor. So that they would know, okay, large ship coming in, large canisters on the on the deck. Which makes sense because it's so close to the coastline. Exactly. And then, the, you know, the guy would be like, oh, hey, that must be my ship. And then he actually makes the journey down to the harbor to to find out awesome absolutely cool factoid thank you for throwing that in there no problem i'm glad that we both kind of came to that same conclusion yeah so and it's good that you mentioned 1830 because in the 1830s because really that is when the shift starts to take place where people are now starting to experiment with with mechanical and electrical technology we're starting to finally begin to harness its capabilities not to the full potential that it would eventually do in the early 20th century but we're, we're starting to, to make these type of experiments. And, of course, you're talking more about the electric telegraph at this point, right? Correct. Yeah. And, and that really, the one, of course, that we associate the most commonly is the one developed by Samuel Morse with his friend Alfred Vail in 1837. And Morse, actually, it's funny because we associate Morse code with Samuel Morse. And actually, it was Vail who developed the code. Oh, but, really? But it was them in... in collaboration with one another. Morse developed the technology, developed the actual mechanism of pressing down on the plate and creating the electrical buzz that creates the beep or the dot, the dot or the dash, right? And all a dot or a dash is, it's just timing. One is longer than the other. And of course, this series of dots and dashes were used to dissociate letters of the alphabet or numbers as well. And this is when we talk about, when we talk about the word in this nature of encoding, this is what we're talking about, right? We, someone on the other side has to know how to determine that these dots and dashes mean these letters of the alphabet. Yeah. Yeah. And the first telegraph that was done electrically was only done about two miles, not very far at all, a long wire. And it was done in New Jersey, actually. It was done on, on the 11th of January in 1838. And it was for a wire for the Speedwell Ironworks in Morristown, New Jersey. So yeah, pretty cool. Now, the other thing is that in 1844, there was a message that was sent all the way to the Capitol building in Washington from, or sorry, from the Capitol in Washington to a depot in Baltimore. So we're talking, again, now a little bit further, still within the uh, relatively close bounds because Washington, D.C. is on the outlying boundaries of Maryland and Baltimore's in Maryland. So, no, not too much further. But the case in point is we're getting further and further out with these symbols. And then finally, by the 1860s, we're talking, we have telegraph line across the country, at least part of what we had is the United States at that time. Well, obviously, you know why. What happened in 1860? Because we're about to go to war. Yeah. And this, thank you for bringing this up, because this is the first major war, I believe, in the world that used the electrical telegraph. And it changed the face of warfare because you could communicate in minutes now a message that normally would take hours or days. Right. And now for the first time in the movie, Lincoln illustrated this beautifully. Mm -hmm. There is now a war room that was full of telegraphs and a bunch of encoders who were listening and getting and transmitting signals. Which was almost exclusively unique to the North. The South had the telegraph, but they had it in a very limited capacity and they used it very, very rarely. In fact, I have read on multiple occasions uh, people citing the fact that the telegraph and the railroad is really what allowed the North to win over the South. And folks, just to make sure we really understand the importance of, and how precedent-setting this was, telegraphs were used up until the, the age of computers, when you can encode a message much more efficiently into a greater level of detail, when we developed that thing called email, <laughs> you know, or faxing, right? Everything else before that is really just predicated upon the telegraph. And we owe all of our modern technology to the telegraph yeah with the way i mean even right now we're, we're on a computer whether it's apple or another person the audio signal that is coming out of my microphone is being transmitted into digital code binaries in some way or another and being decoded by an application that knows how to turn it into audible sound right right all of that is predicated on a coding system that is dots and dashes in this case ones and zeros on or off 
right? It all comes from this telegraph system. Kind of like we were talking about with pyramids, it all comes back to one pivotal pivotal moment. This was that pivotal moment when we started using communication. Unfortunately, it was for warfare, but because it was so efficient in its manner, we started to use it for other things as well, which is kind of the precedent for most technology. And when it, it usually goes from the military and gets trickles its way down into civilian use. Yeah. I will say, though, it's not quite a lot of fun. No, not at all. How would you like to be able to just whistle your language? Whistle your words? I don't whistle all that well, so I think I'd, be, I'd have a horrible time doing that. I have a wonderful time whistling. I enjoy whistling, as I think you know, uh, as I do tend to break out mm-hmm. with a whistle from time to time, quite to the annoyment of all of my Neuronomy family. But I think I would have fit in just fine on the Canary Islands. Mm. Have you ever heard of Cibio Gomero? No. It is a language, and it is a language spoken, and it is spoken entirely through whistles. Hmm. And I'm not making this up. This is not a joke. This is uh, exists on the Canary Island of La Gomeria. And on this island, it is full of dips and valleys and canyons and essentially an acoustic wonderland, if you will. And it made absolutely perfect sense for the inhabitants of this island to communicate over long distances, sometimes two or three miles, just using the ability to whistle. And it completely and totally blows my mind absolutely every single time I hear it because it's so complex. And you can really, if you listen to it long enough, you can make out and discern specific vowel sounds and consonant sounds. There's approximately four vowels, I believe, and then somewhere around seven or eight consonants that make up the actual words. And what's interesting is it's Spanish. Essentially, what they are whistling is the Spanish language. And that's, of course, because, you know, the Canary Islands were uh, a Spanish colony for many, many years uh, and still are to some extent. I don't think they're officially a colony any longer. I could be wrong on that. We might need to do research under that. But... Um, what is amazing is that before the Spanish got there, there was a whole other whistled language that because it was never written down, no longer exists to us any longer. Really? Yeah. And this was, of course, the language of, of the natives of the island. And it's so sad that it, it is now gone, but it does exist. In fact, if I may, I'd like actually to play a, a small clip that I found that has uh, an example of the audio. Which, of course, means, hey, John, I'm going to be out of the office for about the next 20 minutes. I'm going to go get a haircut. It's interesting because it sounds almost like a bird It does, doesn't it? Yeah. It does. And which is important because we don't, we think of language as being only a gift to humans, but really not. I mean, humans have the ability to process complex language, but a lot of animals have the ability to communicate with signals like this. And this is just one that with the right intonation or the right inflection and the right rhythm can communicate a thought or a word. Yeah. Right. And for those who dispute the fact that this is a language, they have done scientific studies where they have taken individuals who have never been exposed to this language before and looked at their brains uh, under, you know, a CT machine and monitored the areas of their brains as they were hearing this. And it was processed by the part of their brain that processes music. Now, when they took somebody, however, who from an early age had been raised and knew the language, when they heard it, the part of their brain that processes language is the part that picked that up instead. So it is for sure and must be considered a language and a dying one, the one that has now been trying to uh, be reborn. Uh, in fact, they are now teaching the language and you can, uh, you can be taught how to speak in such a way. Well, it's interesting that you bring up the musical quality of that because there's one I have to share with you. There's a language out there that was invented. It's not really spoken. It's just a language that was invented by a guy, kind of like Elvish was invented by Tolkien just for the, for the fun of it, mm-hmm. called Soledo. And Soledo is based entirely off of the solfege scale. You what is solfege? that? I don't know what that is, no. Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, do. That is the solfege scale. Oh. Every tone in the scale has a word associated with it right right do, do or what have you do right and then the second do is just an octave higher of the first do and i i actually was a little flat on this on the top do but that's okay i'm not trying to sing here i'm just trying to communicate a thought i'm so, gonna forgive you it's late you've been working you. all day thank you very much and i hope my listeners do the same so but soledo 
was basically this very rudimentary language that uses just these sounds and just these tones to create language. It's pretty cool. And I wish I could remember the name, but there is an animated series of shorts out there that the main character uses Soledo. That's cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. It's a very well animated piece, too. I'll have to ask my friend Beth uh, what it is. But hey, and listeners, if you know who I'm talking about, please tell us, because I'm having a very hard time finding it in my research. So I just wanted to throw it out there. Clearly, you all know how to use our listener feedback button. So please do so. Please, please, please do so. And uh, it's just interesting to me because we see how these signals can go across distances. And it's interesting how we were just using the technology now to shape the way we're doing it differently. So the trouble, though, well, Eric, I'm going to go ahead and ask you this question. What is the one downside to the electrical telegraph that the optical telegraph had? I guess I'd say probably the multitude of symbols and letters and words that it could produce quickly. There's that, too. Yeah, but what about the simple logistics of it? What do you need to be able to transmit a telegraph? Well, you need to have the lines. Yeah, that, that takes a lot of work to produce those. Whereas with an optical telegraph, all you need is a uh, spyglass or a telescope, and you can be able to see it from distance. You're right. An optical telegraph, by its nature, is a wireless system, right? Right. All you need is the two towers, and you can transmit just by. It's like coding. Wi-Fi. <laughs> very, in a very ancient way. Yes. <laughs> well, in the late 1800s, and we're talking turn of the century here, that all changed because. Nikola Tesla was the guy who helped develop the wireless telegraph using radio waves. We had discovered in the late 19th century that we were being bombarded with these electromagnetic waves that we've decided to call radio waves, right? And they, they on, the, on their own, bear no information. But we were able to manipulate them in a way to send an encoded message wirelessly. And that, again started to change everything. Uh, it was not until much, much later that we could develop an actual sound, right? That was with Guglielmo Marconi. Well, actually, Marconi didn't really do spoken radio. That, that came later as well. But Guglielmo Marconi was the guy who was associated with the invention of radio itself, right? But it all goes back to Tesla and Alexander Popov, uh, who they actually demonstrated their wireless radio receiver together. And pretty amazing because they um, also were used it as a way of detecting lightning. Kind of cool. That would make sense. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to remember what it is that does that. It's the same reason why when you're watching television, or at least you used to watch television when you had the, the rabbit ears in a lightning storm, you would see flickers of sound of noise essentially on the screen whenever there was a, a lightning strike. Something about, um, I don't know the science behind it to be honest, but something with the, the ions in the atmosphere or something, I don't know. Right. And uh, Albert Toupin sent his first radio signal using Morse code in France, and he was able to get 25 meters out of that between two towers. So that's pretty uh, pretty awesome. And now, because you don't have to worry about laying down lines, you can just do satellites, basically. And I mean that in the stricter sense of the word satellite, not... Right. Not space. satellites up in outer space. But rather just something being a distance apart from the, the hub. And correct myself, not that satellites are actually in outer space. They're actually in a lower Earth orbit. But anyway... Sorry, that you clarifying, of course. <laughs> Astronaut. <laughs> well, that's true, right? But it was very expensive to produce. And the technology that was required to receive it that was more portable, more practical, was difficult to use. And it was ultimately not as practical for everyday use in the home. And that's, let's face it, that's what people really wanted, right? They want to be able to sit in their homes and communicate over a distance with somebody else a family member, a loved one, a business, a business partner, whatever. Well, they would do that, but they would write a letter to do that. But it was too slow, is my point. They wanted right. instant gratification. They wanted instant communication. Did we Did we really want it, or was it just thrust upon us by the technology? I think we wanted it, and then we quickly realized, oh, God, what have we done? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> when you realize that your Aunt Bertha can now call you any moment of any day. I don't actually have an Aunt Bertha, but I'm assuming that's a, an annoying aunt out there somewhere. If your name is Bertha, I apologize. I think it's if a you, great name. If you name. have nieces and nephews, we apologize. Absolutely. In fact, we apologize to your entire family. Let's move on. But I will say this is a desire, right? Mm-hmm. And it's interesting kind of the evolution that would eventually lead us up to what ultimately became the solution, which was the telephone. Yeah, absolutely. 
I will admit to the telephone, Eric. That is something I'll get to in a minute. Because <laughs> yeah, it's debated. It it's, is heavily debated and has yeah. been heatedly debated, actually, for, for quite a long time. Let's get to what your precursor is. Well, this is not heatedly debated at all. In fact, I don't even know if anyone knows who invented the so-called speaking tube. Uh, but they have been around for a very long time. Uh, the idea of using a, a funnel, if you will, to funnel sound waves from one end to the other. If you want a modern example of it, go to pretty much any playground in the United States. Uh, most of the time, you'll see that little kind of funny funnel shaped thing that sticks into the right. ground. Well, there's another one on the other side of that playground. And if you speak into it, the sound waves from your voice will resonate inside and they will pass and they will be heard on the other side. Sure. Speaking tubes are also, again, if you're familiar with kind of maritime movies, okay, they were used very successfully, really honestly up into the invention and past the invention of the of the telephone and other electronic uh, forms of communication on, on ships. Super telegraphs, too. There was a telegraph on the Titanic. Yeah, absolutely. And it was the fastest and easiest way to get from one side to the other. Now, with the Titanic, you're talking about an enormous ship. Most mm -hmm. ships were a lot smaller in size. And to make an effective speaking tube, you really can't have it be any more than about 300 feet, mm -hmm. which is really quite a distance. Yeah, uh, sure. And, of course, you had to signal the other person on the other side that you were ready to talk to them, right? Because it would be noisy to have noise passing from one side of the ship or house or wherever these were installed in. So they usually be kind of covered, if you will. So you would you would whistle. You would have a, a small whistle that would be right beside it, and you would you know pull on it or what have you. Sure. Activate the whistle. And that would notify the other person on the other end you were ready to talk to them. In the way, you're talking about the format of a telephone without there being a telephone because you ring somebody and then they right. accept the message, right? It's a non-mechanical, non-electric form of telecommunication. Yeah. And Telephony, literally. It actually is telephony because telephony in and of itself means far-reaching sound. Exactly. So it is a telephone without a telephone. Yeah, and they were in fact called megaphones for a long time until the megaphone was kind of repurposed into an and probably copywritten. Yeah, <laughs> but it's interesting because right around the time that the telephone was being invented, there was a push when Bell had pretty much exclusive patent rights to the telephone for a number of years. There was this push by companies to create a series and set of these sound tubes, speaking tubes, in neighborhoods even that would be used in place of telephones now now of course they didn't have a whole lot very far to go they usually be set up to a neighbor or usually they'd be set up inside of a large home like a mansion or something like that right but there was an industry for this there was a business that was very short-lived until all these other competitors got out there and started producing right. other telephone units well it makes sense because if you're talking 300 feet i mean that the where we work our office space is 300 it's more than it's not even 300 feet from the front to the back of the of the building. Right. So that's that's a long distance as far as in a small community. Yeah, absolutely. Another form of communication was a tin can and string. I'm glad you got to that because I was going <laughs> to bring that up next. <laughs> you go run with it. I had the sound uh, speaking tube. You you run with the... Uh... Well, I was going to make a joke because I thought you were going to talk about the kids with the tin cans and the string on the playgrounds. And I thought, no, 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 Eric, they're texting now. Yeah, and I know. <laughs> <laughs> So that's all I was going to say. That's all I had. Oh, but, well, these were this was a really a real marketed invention. It yeah, wasn't it was. just a, a toy that you made when you were a kid. This was something that, you know, was actually quite popular yeah, for a while in the 19th century. What you're really talking about is the fact that that simple principle that when you tether two sides together and you let the can reverberate the sound, that reverberation is going to pass through the string. Right. And you vibrate the membrane and the vibration from the membrane vibrates the taut string which then sends that exact same signal with some degradation, of course, of course, over onto the membrane of the other device. Exactly. Tin can, paper can, whether it, whatever, whatever right. it be. Which in this case means it is both a transmitter and receiver. Yeah. All in one. Which is fascinating because uh, in the 19th century, it was actually advertised as the lover's telephone. It was a quick and fast way to send a communication if you didn't want anyone else to hear you nearby. So it was meant to be whispered to your mistress or what's the opposite of a, what's the male version of a mistress mister lover lover that's lame I guess. they should have their own title but you no know, if that's the case if you're using it for that isn't it a bit conspicuous when you have this can that's hanging off the side <laughs> of your head i'm just gonna say i don't know how terribly effective it was but it was interesting nonetheless the way it was marketed it was like what like. are you doing i'm trying to hear the ocean <laughs> <laughs> in principle though it's really not that different from a telephone. Not at all. In and fact, we called it playing telephone when we were kids. Yeah. When we were playing with them. Exactly. And it is a mechanical type version of it. 
in a sense. Mm -hmm. Of course, there were other forms of mechanical telephone that had come about. And there are so many different people who are attested to actually have been the creator of the telephone. It's impossible to narrow it down to just one person because there were multiple people who were inventing and reinventing, or I should say, um, contributing on top of the work of others, all in and around the time period between pretty much the 1850s and the 1880s, right? But again, this was in its early phases where it was had not been industrialized to the point where everyone was having it. That didn't come until, I would say, the 1920s. Uh, I would say it's a bit sooner than that. Once the patents had really been lifted off of the initial patented version of the telephone, then people pretty much had a field day right away because they'd been waiting for it, you know? Okay. Uh, I will say, though, we should probably acknowledge a couple of these people right off the bat. I think Please. there's really only two people that we're really going to focus on because that's all we have time for today. Yeah, absolutely. Antonio Miucci, who I'm possibly butchering the name on, in 1854 constructed several telephone-like uh, devices. Jonathan Philip Reese in uh, the 1860s constructed his kind of prototype make-and-break telephones called Reese telephones today. And, of course, there was... Uh, the very famous Alexander Graham Bell and Elijah Gray. Those are, of course, the two big ones that we're going to get to. Right. And then Thomas Edison, of well, course, Tom who always pops up everywhere. You know, Thomas Edison is, I'm just going to say it now. I mean, he was a very scientific man and a very clever man. I will say that. But he is probably one of the greatest phonies in the history of American innovation. We've probably talked about this three or four times now. We on have, the and he you really hate Thomas Edison. Well, you know, it's funny. I used to idolize the dude. I mean, I did, uh, like I said, I did my eighth grade report <laughs> on him because <laughs> I'm clearly an expert in this in that regard. <laughs> I mean, he invented a lot of cool things, and he is a self-taught man, and that is to be praised because he his parents couldn't afford formal schooling, you know, and the fact that he would spend his earnings working as a as a boy on a on a train car selling concessions to go pay for his own science kit is awesome. It's unbelievable. It is the American story, right, of the American dream of you build your own way. Unfortunately, when he had built his own way, then he was like, well, he felt entitled to rip other people's ideas off and claim patents on them before anybody else could. Famous example of this is the Nikola Tesla debacle because yeah. they had alternating current versus down current, and he wanted his down current um, to be the format, and he started making smear campaigns about how Tesla's format was unsafe and that there he invented stories of people being you know electrocuted to death when they were trying to set these systems up and be that as it may if it wasn't for that whole debacle we would never never have had acdc yes that's true so you bite your tongue <laughs> i'm not gonna bite my tongue do it no that that is a cruel thing to wish upon somebody. <laughs> i'm not wishing i'm actually kind of demanding but i know <laughs> that's a cruel thing to demand of All somebody right. you imagine yourself biting your tongue right now I am? Okay, I'm done with it. Let's right. go. Thank you. Uh, actually, it was so funny while you mentioned that. I checked it online quickly. I found this really cool Tesla versus Edison poster that I want to put up in the new Nerd Cave. Because I think... For his credit, though, Thomas Edison apparently invented quotation marks, because who knows what Thomas Edison... He improved the telephone. He didn't actually invent it, obviously. I never said he did. I, did, I was going to say, though, he uh, contributed with the carbon microphone, which produced a much better and yes. stronger he was good signal. at improving existing inventions that was his yeah. his talent but he was not necessarily an innovator in the sense that he would um come up with something completely new on his own and that way i guess he is kind of like a steve jobs because steve jobs i love steve jobs he obviously built one of the best companies in the world and but he made his living off of taking existing technology and refining the process down to where it could be usable for everybody well really so did bill gates and a lot of other innovators in that time too that's true and they yeah. all all these guys all these tech giants modeled their method out of off of thomas edison really yeah yeah but i just think edison was kind of a dick i'm sorry i was just gonna say that <laughs> good i'm glad he was also an anti-semite so i'm i don't have any sympathy for him well it was like 1870 i think everyone was an anti-semite back then Nevertheless, I like to just focus my hatred on that. So that works for me. Okay. <laughs> I'm probably being a little irrational, I understand, but nevertheless. That's okay. I'm gonna put a Thomas Edison dartboard in the Please. nerd cave. And you can just you can just throw darts right at can, it. when we hit the bullseye, can we have it like a little light come off? Come on. Only the... if it's uh descending current. Fine. <laughs> we'll just Fine. probably burn down the nerd cave. Okay, anyhow, <sighs> let's get down to what 
our listeners yes, have moving out of for. our firm state of digression let's move <laughs> <laughs> it's like solid yeah exactly. um, <laughs> let's uh let's talk about the telephone and let's really talk about it from the viewpoint of the two men who are most heavily debated as being the so-called inventor of said telephone elijah gray and alexander graham bell mm-hmm all right, cool. Good talk, dude. Good talk. Hey, that was great. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for listening. Okay, so I've pulled up some information here, and I'm going to be quoting our website here. This is from HowStuffWorks.com. They've got some great stuff, and hey, they have a series of their own podcasts, a number of podcasts that they have, so check them out if you haven't already. In fact, I think they have one on history. Hmm. hmm. Interesting. Inside a telephone. The very simplest looking telephone would look like this. And they show the old-fashioned receiver Mm -hmm. with the speaker at the top, the microphone at the bottom, a hook switch, and a wire that goes to a wall jack. Okay? They basically break it down into into those things. So, and that's it. So you can dial a simple phone by simply rapidly tapping the hook switch, which would code the number basically, the tone. But, of course, the tone was a later innovation. The type of phones that we were talking about would have used the rotary dial, mm. right? And in that case, the, the way the numbering system would have worked was it was the number of clicks they had to take to get back to zero. Right. And every number was a one extra click, right? So zero would actually have required all 10 clicks, but everything else was just click, 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 click. I think we actually had a rotary phone, oh gosh, a lot later than most people. Probably up until around 1997. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. My grandparents in Connecticut had a rotary phone, and they loved it. It was a rotary phone that was actually a modern phone that was only made in like the mid to late 90s. It was one of those more newer designs, but they still loved the rotary function of it. So, And it was one of those rotary phones that had the, uh, the more modern design where it was very compact. It didn't have the separate receiver. It was still built into the headpiece, but it had rotary on it anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's kind of cool. Really, really neat. So anyway, let me move forward here with the physics of it. The only problem with the phone shown above is that when you talk, you will hear your voice through the speaker, right? Uh, That's what the example they give. Most people find that annoying. So any real phone contains a device called a duplex coil or something functionally equivalent to block the sound of your own voice from reaching your ear. A modern telephone also includes a bell so that you can ring and a touchtone keypad with a frequent and a frequency generator, which is what a real phone looks like according to this diagram here. Still pretty simple. I keep going on here. Interesting when they mentioned duplex because when I was looking up radio telephones, which we'll get to in, in I think a part two of this episode, they talk about half duplex or full duplex, and that's interesting that they say the duplex coil blocks your own signal voice because half duplex means you can only have one person talking at a time. Oh. And full duplex means that you can be talking over each other. Hmm. And not every cell phone company is still on full duplex. A lot of companies still... And I remember back on my old Nokia phone, I had an option whether I could choose half duplex or full duplex. I never understood what it meant. Now I do. I'd say this Uh, podcast sometimes requires a half duplex. (laughs) (laughs) A little bit. Especially when we have three or four people on. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, that would be great. (laughs) It really would be. I I think Skype may involve half duplex. It makes sense, doesn't it? Because I don't think you can really talk over the other person. No, yeah. I, think, I think it cuts off, yeah. So, and of course, then you have to have it plugged into a wire, and then the, the cable runs through to a main line that's managing all these different switchboards, right? And in the, in the old days, there wasn't even the dialing. You had to call an operator, and the operator would actually patch you in. That's where the term patch comes from, is you literally had, they called it the patch. It was just a series of cables, and then you plugged the receiving end into the sending end of another line basically so very rudimentary system and you know if the just it kept improving over time but i think instead of focusing too much on the science behind it because i know for you and me both i'm not really a scientist i'm not really good at explaining the physics behind why a telephone works why don't we focus on the the historical impact of it because you actually want to talk about a conflict that took place Right. And of course, that was with the two people that we had mentioned earlier, Elijah Gray and Alexander Graham Bell. Please. And it's, it's interesting because it's something that's been debated for really a very, very long time. But essentially, the two had reached an impasse, both of them. They had developed a technology that they were still missing just one fundamental and kind of key piece, which eventually would 
kind of come to fruition and and make it really a practical design for transmitting audible speech via their their telephone invention and when you have a uh, good old elijah gray who he had developed technology but he never really specifically stated that it was for the purpose of of sending speech he would eventually and he would as as he got a lot closer to the actual patent that he would file uh, or attempt to file i should say but uh, he never made it quite as clear as, as Bell did. Bell really had that intent from the get-go and, and specifically stated it very clearly. And it's no big surprise then that in the year of 1876, when the two of them were finally getting ready to file, they had worked out all the kinks, they figured out what they needed to make it work, that there would eventually be some sort of conflict because they were pretty much coming to the, to the finish line at the same time. This was kind of a photo finish, right? It even ends up with them both having their patents filed in the same patent office really on the same exact day no kidding now united states law states that it's not when the patent is received but more so when the notion and idea is created and so you had to look to you know their notebooks and other files that they would have been keeping on the project as they were building it and dating it and having it notarized while they were doing that process and what have you that really decides who gets the credit first but there was a lot of controversy because there may have been some shenanigans in place. Really? We know that Gray technically had a, had his patent, all of his paperwork pretty much, filled out first and done so before Bell. However, we also know that Bell's lawyer, who had been very closely involved with the patent clerk who was reviewing everything, maybe had been up to some no good. Supposedly, this clerk owed quite a bit of money to Bell's lawyer and uh, accepted a bribe and a waiver of some of his uh, his previous debts in order to sneak a peek at Gray's diagrams and designs that he had to compare and contrast with Bell's own. And Bell supporters do state that his invention was different. His diagram was different. His way of getting to the same conclusion was different. Uh, and but he so, used Gray's design as a as a springboard, though. Well, that's debated. Again, nobody knows that entirely for sure because he did have his own concepts and ideas even though he didn't have them completely written down uh, and documented as well as Gray did, which should have not mattered. Gray technically should have therefore been successful, um, but was more or less under the impression that Bell had beaten him to it, that he had already been accepted within the patents office you know, back in, uh, in January or something to that, to that effect. And more or less gave up before, you know, he really should have just kept going. He could have, could have kept fighting it and could very well have been proven to be, really be uh, the first to conceive and, you know, disclose the invention that he had uh, in the caveat that he had filed on the 14th of February in 1876. But his failure to take any further action with it, just to assume that uh, Bell had actually beaten him to it and kind of gave up on it, is the reason why he is not uh, really recognized as that inventor. But it didn't really matter anyway, because Bell would have gone on and still been very successful and, of course, had his very successful uh, experiment where, you know, the famous story where he asks his uh, assistant Watson to uh, come into the room. You know, he's communicating via his, his telephone from the other room. And uh, the rest, as they say, is, is kind of history. So there's a whole lot more behind that, a whole lot mm -hmm. more levels of complexity. I tried... My hardest to kind of condense it very quickly because I know we're running out of time. We'll do it proper justice going forward in a future episode because we do want to revisit this topic, but we want to take it further. Uh, of course, Kevin wants to come on the show and he wants to discuss it in uh, more detail. The history of our modern communication, right? From the telephone to satellites to cell phones, the internet, all that good stuff. I would even include radio and television in that oh, absolutely. as well, even though it's not two-way communication. Yeah, absolutely. It is a form of communication regardless. Yes. I think it's a good idea. Let's let's make it a, let's put the pause in this then and let's continue yeah. it when we have Kevin here we can really bring it into the contemporary era. Yeah, I'm not going to call this a part 1 though. I I think that this has its own episode in its own right and that we'll do a, a follow-up episode on the on a different subject, which of course would be the history okay. of modern Fair enough, communication. Guys. And as usual, we always talk about how this topic has changed our lives and this has certainly changed our lives because Everything we do now, every way we communicate, we correspond with people is somehow, other than just them being in the room with us and having a conversation with them, is dictated by 
these communications. Yeah. Everything we do today has a fundamental base in the telegraph and the telephone and in their earliest forms. Yeah. Even in smoke signals and cuneiform tablets. I mean, they all, they all are present in some form or another today in a, in a modern, more evolved form. Yes. So think about that the next time you text your friend. Yeah. Right? You could have been texting them cuneiform. There you go. Brian, thank you so much. Of course. As always. What a great episode, as always. Yeah. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, please, you can subscribe to us on both the iTunes store and on Stitcher Radio. And if you do, give us a review. We'd love to hear what you have to say. Also, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an appeal to our listeners. If you have enjoyed this fantastic content that we've been providing you for the past almost eight months, uh, we have a whole new feature on our website. And that is our donation button that is true we're totally having a pbs pledge moment for a second here folks you know the power of asking this is something that brian and i have talked about before it is something that we are not beyond here at nerdonomy and we would love to have your support if you like our shows both nerds on history and nerds on film and can find it in your pocketbook and heart to support us we would be more than grateful and all proceeds go towards supporting the podcast what does that mean? Well, it means making sure that we have the equipment that we need to record each week. It means making sure that we have an environment to record in that is properly sound dampened and provides the best quality to your ears. Also helps us to uh, build up our merchandise that we're trying to do online with our great t-shirts and provide uh, advertising so more and more ears can hear our podcast. So again, uh, I appeal to you, think to a time when you've been on your uh, mobile device and you've bought an application or a game or something that maybe cost a dollar, $1.99, $2.99, and you just never played it. You never looked at it again, or maybe it just kind of sucked and you forgot about it. You played it for five minutes and then yeah. you just never opened it again. Yeah. Think about that. That is a fortune to us here at Nerdonomy and can uh, do wonders for us. Yeah, and we will accept any amount of money too. Yeah. If you want to give us two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000, we will be happy to accept it. <laughs> careful what you wish for <laughs> yeah i know right yeah but thank you just for uh just for hearing us and considering it we appreciate that absolutely and guys please if you want to follow us uh, you can follow me on twitter at brian moriarty you can follow me at the brickmont and you can follow our whole group at nerdonomy all right and please like i said go to nerdonomy.com and you can find all the other ways of communicating with us as well as maybe giving us a little bit of dough so <laughs> and a shout out we want to hear more of your shout outs and more of your suggestions of course Eric, as always, it's a pleasure. No, no, no. The pleasure is mine. Yes. And uh, thank you guys again for listening to us. And tune in to us next time. Same nerd time, same nerd channel, nerdonomy.com. <laughs>